going to do tonight is look at the scriptures, and we're going to look at a passage in the book of Haggai. If you have been around Thrive for the past couple of weeks, you'll know that we have been doing a little short series on the book of Haggai, just four weeks. Haggai is a prophet. He is one of the minor prophets. He's minor, not because he's less important, but because his book is shorter. And there's only two chapters in this book. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. And what we've been saying is that the book of Haggai is a blueprint for revival. A blueprint for revival. Um, Revival, anyone want to try to define what that word means tonight? Yeah, I mean, it literally means to revive, like vivify or vivid comes from a, a word that has to do with life. And so to revive something means that you're breathing new life into it. And so when Christians use the term revival, what it refers to is an extraordinary work of God where God's truth and God's reality are manifest in an intense and personal way. And so what that means is when a revival takes place, non-Christians become Christians Sleepy Christians wake up, and in many cases, whole societies are transformed. So earlier, uh, the the movie Sound of Freedom was mentioned, which is about the modern-day slave trade. Some of you might also have heard of William Wilberforce, who was the prime figure who was responsible for the abolition of the slave trade in, in, in England. And what some people may not realize about what Wilberforce did is that what Wilberforce accomplished was incredible. I mean, the efforts of that man and the people who worked with him were extraordinary, but it was also built on the back of a religious revival that had happened prior to that, where the whole country was transformed, and Wilberforce was one of the fruits of that. So revival can affect an individual, it can affect a group, it can affect a church, and it can, it can affect a whole society. And so there's nothing we need more today than revival. And Haggai is a little book that gives you a blueprint for it. And it's a book that describes a revival that happened among the people of Israel and shows the obstacles that emerged that kept that revival from being sustained. So this is a book that uh, describes revival, and it shows the kinds of obstacles that can prevent it from being sustained. And it takes the form of four little messages divided among these two chapters, and tonight uh, we're going to look at the fourth and final message, and it's found in the uh, end of chapter 2. It's just four verses long, and I'm going to read it for you. So Haggai chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So what we've seen each week in this book is that there's been a different obstacle to revival. You know, sometimes it's common to ask, you know, hey, why why does it seem like God isn't doing anything in my life right now? You know, why does it seem like God feels absent in my life right now? And of course, it's true that God is a sovereign God. I mean, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And so it may very well be the case that it actually is part of his sovereign plan that not every single moment in your life feels like a mountaintop. You ever thought about this? You ever thought about the fact that that a mountaintop is great? It's beautiful. You can see this amazing view of things. You know, we're Washingtonians, so, you know, we know about mountains. Maybe you've even been on the top of one. But the thing about a mountain is that you've realized nothing grows on the top of a mountain. 
It's all dead. You know where things grow is in valleys. Rivers run through valleys, and that's where life and growth happens. So it may be God's sovereign purpose that not every single moment in your life is a mountaintop. Maybe it does sometimes feel like there's not a lot going on and God feels far away. However, however, sometimes God has already told us the reason that he's not moving in our lives, and, that, and we simply haven't responded. We haven't responded to what he's already commanded and called us to do. And so conveniently, the book of Haggai gives us a list of four things, four things that can impede revival. And we saw these last week. I just want to look at them one more time, just in case you haven't been here the past couple of weeks, just so you have an idea of what's in this book. So the first obstacle is false contentment. This is in chapter one, where the people say, we don't need to build the temple. Haggai's a book that's all about rebuilding the temple of God that's been torn down. And God has commanded them to do this more than a decade ago. And for 16 years, the people have just sat there and allowed it to grow ivy. In other words, they're content with mediocrity and with the status quo. And God has to send Haggai like an alarm clock to wake them up and say, now's the time to build the house. And so the same thing can happen to us. You know, we can get complacent with luxury and with comfort and with contentment. And we might be missing out on something that God has for us that he's already called us to do. False contentment, number one. False discontentment is uh, the second message. And they've started to build the temple again. The people obey. But no sooner have they begun to build the temple than they get discouraged and cynical. And they look at how small the temple is that they're rebuilding. And they say, is this it? Is this actually as is, is good as, as God gets? And they don't realize that God has commanded them to build something that they're not going to see the full fruits of in their lifetime. And Haggai encourages them and says, don't get discouraged. Don't get discontented. This temple that I'm commanding you to build is going to be greater than the temple under Solomon. And that's because Jesus, was, he, he came to the second temple. It was greater than the first. And then last week, the middle part of chapter 2, false expectations where the people assumed that, well, you know, here we are outwardly obeying and doing what God told us to do. We're building the temple. Doesn't that mean that he's going to bless us? And the message of this part of the book is that God doesn't just want your hands. He wants your heart. You can, you know, believe it or not, there can be two people standing next to each other in a church service. And they can be singing the same songs. They can be reading the same Bible. Maybe they're even serving in the same ministry. You know, they're really, you know, slugging it out for Jesus or whatever. And they can be as far apart spiritually as heaven and hell. And that's because it's possible that you can serve God, not because you love God, but because you're actually trying to manipulate God. You're trying to use your good deeds to get leverage on God so that you can go to God and say, God, look at all the amazing things I've done for you. Now you have to bless me. Now you have to bless my life and give me what I want. I would always say this out loud, but this is kind of the posture that we can have. And this might have been the trap that the people in Haggai's day would have fallen into were it not for this message, where Haggai comes along and says, God doesn't just want your obedience. He doesn't just want your behavior. He doesn't just want your actions. He wants your heart. He wants you to love him, not just serve him. And then finally, this last message. And in this final message, the fourth and final message, uh, the, the final obstacle that, is con uh, that Haggai confronts in this book is the obstacle of fear. Fear. Um, one of the striking things about this little passage, um, unlike the previous ones, do you notice it's addressed to just one person? Um, so notice in verse 21, the Lord says, Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So it's just, it's one guy, one guy. 
Now, Zerubbabel, um, how would you like to have had that name? You know, aren't you glad your parents didn't name you Zerubbabel? You know, it's almost just, yeah, it's pretty bad, a pretty bad name. But in any case, Zerubbabel was the leader. He was the leader of the exiles and was a part of the, the royal line of King David. Which is why it's actually pretty interesting. If you look at verse 21, notice what he's called. He's not called the king. He's called the governor. Now, does anyone know why that is? Why he's the governor rather than the king? I mean, he's in the king, king's line. Any ideas? They're being ruled over. Yeah, right. This is, this is a painful little jab in the eyes to the Israelites to remind them that they're actually not in charge anymore, that they've been overruled and conquered by the Gentile kingdoms. And right now, the kingdom that's ruling over them is the Persians, the Persians. And so as merely governor, Zerubbabel is kind of like just the, the regent, the vice regent of the king of Persia. You know, the, the, the Persian emperor had way too many parts of his empire to rule over, so he just kind of appointed different people to rule over them for him. So that's kind of what Zerubbabel is, is in, this, in this book. And so that means that Zerubbabel is, is this leader, but he's a leader of a struggling, fledgling, tyrannized group of people. And leadership, as some of you may know, especially a set of circumstances like these, is a hard and lonely position to be in. And so you really see the, grace, the graciousness of God here in that he's directly speaking to this man. And the things that he communicates specifically to Zerubbabel would have spoken pretty powerfully to the burdens that a man in his position would have been carrying. And God gives Zerubbabel two assurances, two assurances in these very brief few verses. And I want to look at both of these here. First of all, he promised Zerubbabel something about the nations. The nations. Remember, it's the nations that are ruling over Israel at that time. Look at verses 21 and 22. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. According to the book of Ezra, this is another book that's written after the exile. The whole reason that the Jews stopped building the temple was because the surrounding nations tried to intimidate them and eventually got them to stop. And in fact, I'm going to read you uh, just a short little excerpt from the book of Ezra. This is Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of king, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which, by the way, is the king that's ruling at this time. Now, do you see the key word in this passage? I want to suggest to you it's the word afraid. They're using fear in order to thwart the purposes of God for his people. And the same thing might be true of some of us. Satan loves to use fear to thwart God's work in your life. So, uh, preacher's confession for public consumption. Some of you know, in fact, I think probably many of you know, that one of the things I really enjoy in life are books. 
If you go to my house, I have lots of books. I live in a very small house, but the house feels even smaller because there's so many books in the small house. And actually, I, I read these books. I haven't read all of them, but I've read many of them. So the point is, Michael really <laughs> enjoys books. And <laughs> one day, this was a number of years ago, I was on, uh, I was browsing on Craigslist. I sometimes go on there and see what kinds of theology books in particular are, are up there. And you guys, <clears throat> you guys, this was unbelievable. There was, like, there was, there was a lot of theology books, the, like beautiful condition, and I, I, I kid you not, there were probably 40 boxes worth of books. And these, these were like really good books that I had like, and I want to like admit to breaking the 10th commandment in front of the fry, but I, admit, I probably had coveted some of them in the past. And guess what the price was for like these 40, it was 40 boxes of books for like, I think it was like $1,100. I mean, like, if you're not into books, let's, you know, just as an equivalent, let's say you're into cars or something, you know, that'd be getting, like, a brand new top-of-the-line Mustang or, like, an F-150 for, like, $5,000. I mean, maybe even, like, cheaper than that, $2,000. I don't know. Not even joking. But so I, you would think, like, oh, this is, like, a once-in-a-lifetime deal. Like, of course he's going to just jump on it. And I didn't jump on it. I just, all of a sudden, these, like, irrational fears began to kind of, rise up out of me and I kind of began to think like, you know, like, what if buying all these books would make me too materialistic? You know, what if God doesn't want me to buy all these books? You know, all these excuses. I mean, the real excuse was where I was going to put them all, but I didn't, you know. (laughs) And I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And then the offer disappeared. And I just, to this day, I sometimes still trawl through Craigslist and I still try to find, you know, see, see if I can find a good deal on some of those books that I missed out on in the incredible, unbelievable, once-in-a-lifetime, $1,100 book deal of the century. Now, why did I miss out on that? <laughs> You're saying, what's there to miss out on? Who is this guy? Who would ever want 40 boxes of theology books? <laughs> well, again, I, I, like I said, you know, preacher's confession, this is my, you know, my, my, uh, my eccentricities. You all have them, too. But it was because of fear. It was because of fear, you know, kind of irrational fear. And of course, that's a bit of a silly example, but but fear is no laughing matter. It's not silly. There are more adventures missed. There are more opportunities squandered. And there are more efforts that we might be able to, uh, to, to see take place for the kingdom of God that are squandered because of fear than just about anything else. And by the way, there are more people who will spend an eternity separated from Jesus in hell because of fear. And I really mean that. If you go to Revelation chapter 21, if you know that chapter, after recounting the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, there's a warning. And it's a warning of the kind of sin that if it's not dealt with through what Christ did on the cross and through personally appropriating that in your life can lead a person to eternal damnation. And you know the very first sin at the top of that list? It's cowardice. Cowardice. Uh, Kenneth Clark. Kenneth Clark was a famous British television presenter, and he died um, not knowing Jesus. But in his autobiography, he admitted that there was a time when he was visiting a beautiful church when he had a profound religious experience. He says, uh, quote, My whole body was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I'd ever known before, than I'd known before, end quote. 
And you think that after an experience like that, he would have become a Christian pretty easily, but he, he actually didn't. And the reason, he said, was because he knew that if he actually took his experience seriously, that that would mean he would have to change his life and that people might ridicule him. And, and maybe one day he, he realized maybe he'd somehow made it all up anyway. In other words, what kept Kenneth Clark from a saving relationship with Jesus was fear. And fear was what threatened to keep the Jews of Haggai's day from experiencing God's will for them. But the wonderful thing here is that God's first assurance to Zerubbabel is that he doesn't need to be afraid. And the reason for that is that the first promise that's given here in 21 and 22 is a promise that God is going to dramatically deal with Israel's enemies, the very people that are causing them fear in the first place. And in fact, the language he uses about chariots and horses and riders, if you, you know, know, know your, your Bibles, you might realize this kind of resembles the Exodus a little bit. You know, in other words, it's like God is saying, just as God radically delivered his people then in the Exodus, he's going to make that same promise to Zerubbabel. He's going to do the same thing again one day. So the question then for us is, what, is, you know, what does it look like to actually drive this home personally? How do we deal with fear? Haggai chapter 2 teaches that the way to get free from fear is to stand firm on the promises of God. The way to get free from fear is to stand firm on the promises of God. Uh, some of you may know some of the details of this story, but just to kind of zoom in on a particular part of uh, the, the two years that I spent living in England. And, and I've shared here before that there was a, a time right toward the end of my, my time living in England where the, the two dream careers that I'd gone there to pursue just very clearly kind of shut in my face. And there was a night when this kind of began to hit me, and it felt like my life was over. It's pretty terrifying. <laughs> maybe, maybe you've been there. And all I knew how to do was just I went out into the backyard one night of the house where I was living. There was no one home. And... I just found myself on my knees just crying out to God in despair and desperation, feeling like I was at the end of myself. And, and I would say there was some fear involved there, like, Lord, what's my future going to be? I literally have no idea what's next. And, I, and I, in that moment, one of the reassurances that, that I believe God had in that moment were the promises of God. And these weren't necessarily the specific scriptures that came to mind, but they easily could have been. You know, Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Romans 8, 28. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you with my loving eye on you. Every single one of these verses was like a lifeline to me because they were saying, even though you are afraid of your future, even though you're afraid of, of, of the things that you don't know, God is a sovereign God who's taking every single threat, every single circumstance of your life, and he's working it out into a plan for our good and his glory. And one of the things that makes those promises meaningful to me, and maybe for some of you as well, is that they never change. They never change. You know, you could be having a, a good day, you know, good feelings, and those verses are still going to be in Scripture. You could be having a bad day, you know, not good feelings, bad feelings, 
And, and those verses are still in Scripture. God's promises remain the same. And if you try to build your faith on feelings, it's like throwing an anchor inside of the hold of a ship. You know, if a ship is out at sea and it's tossed back and forth by the waves, and you say, we've got to do something about this. Let's grab the anchor. Okay, grab the anchor. And then imagine the sailors take the anchor and they just like, you know, hurl it onto the deck of the ship. They say, that'll do it. <laughs> it's going to be rocked back and forth by the waves. That is exactly what it's like. If you try to found your faith, if you try to build your faith on feelings or voices in your head or emotional impressions, and I'm not saying that like, if you're a Christian, there's no emotion involved. Oh my goodness, yes, there is. But that's not the foundation. If you try to found your faith on feelings, you'll, you'll be like that ship. Instead, this is the order that our lives are called to be built on. It's fact, faith, feeling. Fact, then faith, then feeling. And what that means is that you don't get to decide, based on how you're feeling on a given day, whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> if Jesus Christ rose from the dead then you have no control over that. Now, that doesn't mean there's not questions about, well, did it happen? I probably should think about that and try to get you know, an answer to that question for yourself. But you know, as to whether it like, actually happened, objectively took place in history, like, your feelings might go like this all day long, and it doesn't change the fact that he really rose. And if Jesus really rose, then do you realize that everything is going to, if you, if you know him, if you know him, then everything is going to work out. Everything's going to be okay in the end. And so that is the fact, you know, that, that is the, the objective reality, who God is, what God has said, what the things that he's given us in his word. And then in response to that, we put our trust in that. That's what faith is. Faith is not blind. It's not a leap into the dark. It's actually a leap into the light. It's a response to God's revealed truth and reality. And so we put our faith in the truth and in the facts of who God says he is, and then the feelings follow from that. Do you see that? Fact, faith, feeling. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 6, it says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And, and if you read that passage and you look at it in its context, it is talking about the, 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 the bonafide, hard as a diamond, reliable as rock promises of God. It doesn't say our feelings are an anchor for the soul. No, it says God's promises, God's word, are the anchor for the soul. And if you build your life on those promises, you don't have to give way to fear. That's the first assurance. But then there's a second assurance. This is found in verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. So we, what we have to do here to understand this is we, we, we have to understand just at least a few of these significant details, particularly what, what is meant here by a signet ring? We don't really, don't really wear those anymore. A signet ring was, it was a seal. It was a, a, a seal that a king or a ruler would use to officialize documents, you know, kind of like a seal that you'd use with wax or something like that. In fact, one commentator says this about, about what this was. A, the signet ring engraved with the king's seal was used to endorse all official documents. 
It was so precious that to guard it against theft, it was usually worn on the king's person. So it's a signet ring. You'd literally wear it. And so this is, is, is a metaphor for the, God's delegated authority. It's a meta, metaphor also for, for closeness. You know, when God is telling Zerubbabel, I will make you like my signet ring, it's a way of telling Zerubbabel that I have a, a, a precious, particular, significant purpose for you that I'm going to use you for. And in fact, I just, you know, focusing particularly on, on the fact that the signet ring of something would be very, it would be worn on the king's person. There's a little bit of an idea of closeness, intimacy with God here. Just, it's kind of interesting that uh, when it says here, I will make you like my signet ring, it's almost identical language to the place where in the Bible's famous love poem, Song of Solomon, it famously says, set me like a seal over your heart. It's the same word, same word as, as signet ring. So now that we know what that is, what, what does this mean? What's the promise that God is promising here? The promise at the very end of this book is a promise that God is going to restore the Davidic line, the line of King David. Now, just for some context, way, way back in the time of King David, maybe you know that God comes to David and he makes a promise to David and his descendants. And he says, you're never going to lack a man who will sit on the throne of the kingdom of Israel one day. And, and now in light of the New Testament, we realize that what that promise is really referring to is Jesus. God is promising King David that the Messiah is going to come from your family. And this is a promise that's sometimes called the Davidic covenant. And by the way, this is why if you, um, if you read, for example, the books of Kings or Chronicles, those books zoom in on the line of David. It follows the progression of kings that comes from him. And the reason it zooms in on David's royal descendants is because the line of the Messiah was expected to come from there. It's almost as though Kings and Chronicles are searching for the Messiah. And, you know, is this guy it? Is this guy? No, no, no. It's, it's, you, you, that's why you constantly read all these records of their failures, because you realize none of them are the actual promised king. But in Jeremiah chapter 22, Jeremiah 22, there's a very, very significant word that God delivers in judgment of the Davidic line. And if you know the context of Jeremiah, this is right at the, you know, sort of the, the height of the, the sinfulness of the people that then leads into the exile. And if you have a, a Bible, or if you want to look up on screen even, um, look at Jeremiah 22, and look at verse 24. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin was one of the, the last reigning kings on the throne of, of Judah, even if you, Jehoiachin, uh, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring, on my right hand, I would still pull you off. So you see, in judgment for the, the sin of the kings, God pulls Jehoiachin off you know, of his hand as though he were, the, were that kind of ring. And then look at verses 28 through 30. Continuing to talk about Jehoiachin, this, this, one of these final kings here. Is this man Jehoiachin a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? reference to the exile. Then God says, this is actually interesting, he's prophesying here to the land, and I think that's because at this time, uh, the land is being ready to be vacated, all the people are going to be taken into exile, so God says, well, no one else I can prophesy this to, so this will be heard and remembered, I'll just talk to the 
the land. It's, it's, it's always going to be there. He says, O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man, Jehoiachin, record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Now, did you catch that? Do you see what God is saying here? None of his descendants will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. This is a curse that God puts on the Davidic line. He's saying that none of Jehoiachin's descendants will be able to sit on the throne. And so now it makes even more sense, doesn't it, why Jehoiachin is just the governor? He's not actually the king? Because according to God's very word, he can't be the king. So now in this final message to Zerubbabel, you can kind of see why this is such a shocking and incredible assurance. Because God is promising him that he is going to somehow restore the Davidic line. Somehow God is still going to use the descendants of David to bring the true king into the world. Now just for a minute, imagine that you're Zerubbabel. And, and before getting this message, here's what you probably would have been thinking. You would have been saying, okay, we're building this temple. Okay, but like, what's the use? <laughs> the line of kings is finished. You know, what good can ever come from there ever again? Or, you know, maybe he's thinking, I've been born into the line of the kings. You know, normally that'd be great. I'm royalty. But instead, all he knows is, is shame. Because it's your royal ancestors that were responsible for the exile happening in the first place. It's your royal ancestors that God cursed. These are some of the fears that Zerubbabel might have had about his future and the future of his nation. And so it could be that maybe these are more the kinds of fears that you're prone to. Maybe, you know, less fears about, you know, just the big picture of, of, of the future of the world or maybe even of your own life, but maybe it's fears inspired by guilt and shame. That because I've done this or because I'm addicted to this, or because I missed a turn, or messed it up, or disobeyed at some point along the way, that therefore God is finished with me, and I'm no more than just a Jehoiachin. And you're looking, therefore, at, at all the pieces of your life, completely doubtful that God could ever untangle the mess that you have made. And so maybe you felt like what Zerubbabel probably felt like, maybe you felt like what the people felt like. Which is why the good news of the gospel is that God is able to take any mess and he is able to redeem it. And the way that he did that was not through Zerubbabel, but it was through Zerubbabel's greater son, Jesus Christ. You know, you know, what, you know what the cross means? When Jesus went to the cross, you know, he was taking all of our sin upon himself. You know, he was taking all of the things that were required to have a right relationship with God. He was taking our sin. He was taking the judgment that our sin deserved. He was taking all of our failures. He was taking all of, our, all of the mess that we've made of our lives and other people's lives. And on the cross, the, the fire of the wrath of God fell on Jesus as our vicarious substitute. Uh, you know, back in the, the pioneer days, Maybe you know that if you've ever played Oregon Trail, you want to play Oregon Trail in elementary school? Yeah. So, so on the, in the pioneer days... Pioneers would travel across the, the prairie lands on their way out west. 
And if you were one of those early settlers in that part of the country, there was one thing that you would be afraid of more than almost anything else, and it was a prairie fire. If you ever saw near your little homestead smoke out on the horizon, then you knew you had only seconds before that fire reached you and your family because a prairie fire could outrun a horse. And so one day, you know, stories told, there was, there was a man out near his little homestead, and he sees, sure enough, smoke on the horizon. He realizes he has a matter of seconds or minutes until that fire reaches him. And so he, kind of thinking quickly, does something pretty remarkable. He takes a match, he lights the match down below his feet, and the fire begins to burn away all of the, 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 the grass down by his feet. It makes a little black spot there where the, where the fire had been. And he has his family come and stand on the place where the fire had already been. So when the prairie fire came, he and his family were spared. The cross of Christ at Calvary is the one place where you can stand where the fire has already been. Where God's judgment has already come down on Jesus so that we don't have to live in fear and anxiety about whether we've done enough. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. There is nothing blasphemous to claim that you can add or take away anything from what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I'm plan A, and now I'm just going to be on this mediocre, inferior path for the rest of my life. No, 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 no. That is not biblical. Romans 8.28. God works all things for good. You know, that includes all. That includes your sin. God is miraculously able to take even your sin and, and to turn it into something that he, he works for good. This is the good news of the gospel for our life with regard to this promise to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is probably thinking, God, how can this promise be true? Oh, don't put that up on the screen just yet. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Zerubbabel's probably thinking, how on earth can this ever possibly be true? Because there's a curse on this line. There's no way this line, you know, the line of kings that I'm in, could ever be used by God ever again. But when you go to the New Testament, maybe some of you have puzzled over this before. I certainly have. Why is it, why is it that there are actually two different genealogies that are given of Jesus Christ? In, in Matthew, there's a, a genealogy that's given. It actually is a genealogy that runs from David all the way through all the kings. It actually goes through Jehoiachin and Zerubbabel as well as in there. And then there's another genealogy that is in the Gospel of Luke. And you might wonder, well, these genealogies are different. How can they both be true? It seems like it's a contradiction. And interestingly enough, uh, both of those genealogies, David is in both of them. So regardless of you know, which one you go with, Jesus is still a descendant of David in each of them. So, but a lot of people are puzzled over you know, how, to, how does this work. Well, a lot of theories. Let, let me give you the one that I believe Scripture uh, points to, and, you, and you'll see how this all connects. Back in that time, it was common if if uh, if someone was <clears throat> uh, was uh, you know had, had no other male members in their family that sometimes uh, through a device called leveret marriage, that meant that the the brother of the the dead brother would marry the dead brother's wife, so that way that um, woman would have uh, a male figure to, to care for her since they were kind of the economic uh, breadwinners of that day. Well, <clears throat> one of the very distinct possibilities is that when Mary and Joseph come together in marriage, 
that Mary may very well have been um, brotherless, no brothers in her family. She's one of the only members of that family, so, so no male figures. And so therefore, Mary's father makes Joseph kind of like his adoptive son-in-law. See that? Well, what that then would mean for, for these seemingly conflicting genealogies is that in the Gospel of Luke, you have a genealogy that actually is Mary's genealogy. And it mentions Joseph in there rather than Mary. It was common to mention men rather than women in a genealogy. But really, the reason Joseph's in there is because he's now kind of been adopted into, by Mary's father into that family. And so you see Mary's genealogy there. And so that means that uh, by blood, Jesus is a descendant of David, but not through Solomon and Jehoiachin and all those others. He's a descendant through David's son, Nathan. So does that make sense? He's, he's in the family of David, which is what the promise says, but it's, it's, it's a different son, the son that doesn't have the curse. And then... In the Gospel of Matthew, <laughs> yeah, the, the, you'll see where this all goes. In the Gospel of Matthew, it is the line with the curse on it, and that is Joseph's line. Most likely, that's actually Joseph's actual ancestry, his actual father. Go ahead and show it. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't, I don't know if you can see it very easily, but you can see there Abraham, and then David, and then... Um, and then the, the ones in yellow are the, the royal line, David, Solomon, Jehoiachin, and then Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, all these guys, all the way to Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father. And then on the other side there, on the, the, the right-hand column, you see David, and then you see um, his son Nathan, and then the other descendants that lead to the genealogy in Luke chapter 3. Now what this means is that as the adopted son of Joseph, Jesus had a legal right to sit on the throne of David, because he was in the line of the kings. But because he was not actually Joseph's blood descendant, because of the virgin birth, he wasn't under the curse that was on that particular line. Do you see? Do you see how, as a result of God's perfect plan, he was able to fulfill this seemingly impossible promise made all the way back in the book of Haggai, chapter 2? Now, why do I show you this? I show you this partly just because it's kind of interesting, and it kind of ties back to our text tonight. But, but do you realize that if this is what God can do through Christ, then there is no sin, failure, or defeat that he cannot utterly redeem for our good and his glory. And so we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear. If you're here tonight, and you're living with a larger windshield or sorry, a larger rearview mirror than your windshield. In other words, you're still kind of in bondage to your past. You can't alter the past, but you can put the past on the altar. You can give that to Jesus, and you can ask him to take the pieces of your life and to redeem them in a way that only he can. So just as we close here, I want to um, just end in a time of prayer. And, and just if you're here tonight and you... Um, if there's something that God has been saying to you through this message and you are realizing that maybe there's some things that you need to pray through and maybe you would like someone to do that with you, um, maybe there could be a couple of leaders on our leadership team who might be able to help with this. I'd love just to have maybe like one person in the back there, maybe one person back there um, that could just be on hand just to pray with anyone who would like to pray just kind of in our transition now into small groups. Okay, so just know that that's something that, uh, that we can do. And I'm going to pray for us now and we're going to move to discuss. Father, thank you that even genealogies attest to the glory of God. 
Father, thank you that every single word of Scripture is dripping with value and worth and weight. And Father, thank you that because of what your Son did on the cross and in his resurrection, that every single sin, failure, trace of sin left by the fall has been redeemed and atoned and paid for and that we cannot add anything to it. And Father, thank you that that's based not on what we feel on a particular day, but it's based on fact. So Lord, would, just, would you make that real to us? Make that real to our hearts. Help us to know and to trust you rather than placing our trust in ourselves. Thank you that you're a God who's made provision for us to have this kind of rest, this kind of peace, this kind of security so that we don't have to live in fear. In Jesus' name, amen.